Welcome to We Are the Guard, the Arkansas National Guard's podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Mason, the State Public Affairs Officer. 2020 was a very busy year for the Guard and one that brought unique opportunities for us to serve our communities in ways that we never thought possible. If you look out across our formations, many of us have observed the fact that we likely have more women in command than we've ever seen before. And in that way, 2020 has been additionally unique. In this edition of We Are the Guard, we're speaking with one of those women in command, Colonel Corey Saylor. Ma'am, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hey, thanks, Brian, for having me here today. Tell us a little bit about your career. Yeah, I joined the uh, Arkansas Army National Guard in 1992. I know that's a long time ago, uh, but I did that after receiving my commission as a second lieutenant uh, at the uh, University of uh, Memphis uh, in their reserve officer uh training corps, uh, ROTC, and I was on a uh, leadership excellence scholarship. Currently, as you said, I'm serving as the troop command uh, commander, 87th troop command. Um, and basically what we do is we've got a mission of supporting the state natural disaster emergency operations. Uh, we've got capabilities spanning, uh, but not limited to ro road clearance, security, search and rescue. Uh, and we've done a lot of flood response. Um, we've got 13 units across eight counties. Uh, and each of those units has a complex mission of responding to the needs of their community, state, and nation. So um, I do a little bit of budget. I work with about $4 million uh, annual budget um, that I manage, and, um, and I'm responsible for the soldier care and welfare, training and equipping of about 1,000 soldiers. So You picked up JSS recently. I so did. Yeah, in recruiting and retention command, um, and uh, yes, so plus some other soldier care uh, components, uh, so education and incentives branch to be specific, so yeah. Well, ma'am, congratulations on your command. What would you say is the most rewarding part of your job as a commander? Wow, yeah, sure. So the, the most rewarding part, um, you know, is serving soldiers. Uh, and their families and their employers. Um, I love supporting them as they discover their own personal greatness. Um, I absolutely love it uh, when that internal fire is ignited. You can actually see it uh, when it happens. And, you know, they grow from not believing sometimes. And often that's a result of being told that they would never be able to accomplish anything. Uh, and they go from that to this mantra of dare to dream, share the dream, and just basically telling the world, sit back and prepare to be dazzled. So uh, it's uh, it's an amazing, that's, that's, that's the happiest part of the job right there. I love it. So Certainly command has its challenges. Can you tell us about those? The challenges are what make it rewarding. You know, uh, you know, I, I try to tackle challenges and obstacles. I see them as opportunities uh, in, uh, because that's, that stumbling is kind of where we grow. So probably the hardest thing that, um, you know, I've ever had to deal with, uh, and I think many of us, is whenever we lose a soldier. Uh, that's that's the hardest part of just being human, I guess. So, Do you ever really feel like, as a commander, you're not on duty? Never. Never, yeah. I, you know, I, so... I don't really see things as duty. Um, and, you know, the reason, the reason for that is, uh, you know, it's, and 
it is it's a sense of service, right? Uh, and so with that, there's not really any duty hours. You know, if my phone rings in the middle of the night, you know, I tease people I don't have a life. But if my phone rings in the middle of the night and somebody needs something, I'm I'm there. So from that aspect, no, not not really. But um, but that just comes with that sense of service. So how do you? How do you approach this work-life balance thing that we're always talking about, especially in a command, an 06 command nonetheless? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I see a lot of people that are, you know, uh, they're a parent and they're, or they're a spouse or both, you know, or single parent, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and so I, I, I'm not uh, traditionally – uh, you know, I don't wear those dual hats. Um, I do wear many hats. Uh, but um, with regard to that, you know, I'm, I'm not a mother. I'm not a parent. I'm not a not a spouse, uh, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. Um, I'm a sister-in-law. Um, I'm a niece and I'm a really dang good aunt. So, yeah, to some awesome nieces and a nephew. So, uh, but, you know, the other side is I'm also an artist. Uh, and that's a little bit different being in uniform. I don't keep, I know you obviously are very creative with what you do, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I actually, um, I actually paint, uh, and I paint portraits of, of dogs uh, primarily. Um, and then I commissioned those portraits with the, um, with the proceeds. I just donate that. I can't sell my artwork. So I, I, I donate the proceeds to the certified training of uh, service animals for veterans. Uh, so that's just another way that I like to serve and a great keep, cause. keep, uh, keep in touch with my artistic self. So, um, but you know, uh, striking that, that work-life balance, you know, it's it's not easy. Uh, it requires deep work. Um, it requires discipline. It requires resilience. Uh, you knowing when you got to take a break. Um, it requires clarity of purpose. And um, you know, my purpose is, um, you know, I, I do have clarity of purpose, and my purpose is honoring my father by serving those who serve. Uh, and you know. I know as long as I'm doing that and I'm doing it in the service of others, um, like I said before, that's my passion. Uh, that's my purpose. That's my calling. Um, and so it's not a job. It's not a job for me. Um, it's it's more than that. And you know, leadership in the service of others isn't you know defined by the duty hours. Um, it's not defined by assignments, and it's certainly not defined by you know me happening to be in uniform. You know, that's a means for me to serve, but it's not it's not my whole identity. Um, so, you know, with that, it's that's that's my way of life. And with that being my way of life, that's how I strike that balance. So. My father served in the Air Force during Vietnam, mm -hmm. met my wife in the service uh, when we were on active duty station at Fort Carson, Colorado. <laughs> She's a better soldier than I ever thought about being. Right. And so I married up big time. Uh, <laughs> my son now, uh, despite my misgivings, uh, is serving on active duty, just graduated Sapper School. Yeah. Uh, looking to go to Fort Bragg. Yeah. And so um, w the warrior cast always comes into conversation from mm -hmm. time to time. And so you mentioned your father served. Tell us more about that. My dad, uh, we moved around a whole lot. My dad, uh, he he dropped out of high school uh, when he was 17 years old. 
Um, he was uh, flat-footed. He was colorblind. He was about 6'4", weighed less than 170 pounds, so he was, he was underweight. Um, and he had nine toes because he shot one off in a hunting accident. So drops out of high school, and he, he goes to the recruiter um, in Indiana. He never, never saw the ocean, never seen an airplane. And he joined the Navy because he liked their uniforms the best. And, you know, the early 1960s, you know, they wore the dungarees. So uh, bell bottoms were in back then, I guess. So mm-hmm. anyways, but yeah, so, uh, you know, it's crazy. Like I said, he'd never seen the ocean. He'd never seen an airplane. They put him in aviation maintenance in the Navy. And uh, he did that and provided for our family very well. Uh, retired as an E-8 uh, senior chief. And, you know, when I was knee high to a grasshopper, that's all I ever wanted to do was be a senior chief like my dad. Um, he wouldn't have it, though. <laughs> so, yeah, he uh, he insisted I become an officer. So He'd call you captain if he saw you now. He, he would. He <laughs> would call me captain. No, he wouldn't. He'd, he'd call me other things. But, yeah. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Well, uh, transitioning back to the recruiting question. Mm-hmm. You know, our recruiters are really uh, good at what they do and, and yeah. uh, telling young recruits that all you have to do one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer might not necessarily be accurate for mm-hmm. folks who make it up in the rank, at least to maybe even sergeant right. uh, or higher. Right. Um, and we've had some challenges with COVID-19 uh, in that we're rescheduling some drills yes. or we're missing out on some key training opportunities. And now it's 2021 and we're rescheduling some of that. Right. And it's had an impact on not just our families, but certainly our employers. When you look at uh, the 39th going to JRTC for almost an entire month and you right. look at uh, some of the 142nd units are now doing a MUTA 16, eight straight days right. of, of drill. And so you have undoubtedly uh, had to talk to some employers. What do we say to empl- our employers today about the frequency and duration of drills? So I, I would tell you part of our planning consideration uh, in everything we do is the impact, uh, not only on our soldiers, but their center of influence. And uh, so uh, I think oftentimes we see a soldier, we see them as an employee uh, and we see them as an employee of maybe a bigger company. Uh, but that's not always the case. I mean, a lot of times it's a very small team that they work with. They may actually be the the owner of the business. And what does that look like? So, you know, we, we look at everything from that um, that perspective. Um, I think that we owe people you know, one of two things. Um, we can either give them predictability and in absence of predictability, we need to give them flexibility. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that sounds pretty basic, but I, I think between those two things, I think we can manage uh, and, and get. I would tell you that I believe that with COVID-19, we've also gained a lot of efficiencies. Um, and I think that we've also gained a lot of ways of getting things done to give people the flexibility that they can accomplish other things, uh, maybe, uh, you know, in a, in a different way. Uh, and so we've, we've, you know, I, I don't have any of the complex, uh, uh, collective training events, uh, within my brigade. I do have some units that'll be supporting, uh, those other units. Um, so I do have soldiers that'll be going JRTC. I've got a couple of units that'll be there for that in, in support of the 39th and, and in some other aspects. Um, uh, and, and, but we've, We've had plenty of predictability in that case. So they soldiers have known, employers have known. Um, and I always, always let 
soldiers know that if I need to talk directly to, just to say thank you. I mean, we've got an award program for employers just to tell them thank you. Uh, whatever we can do uh, to show our gratitude and our appreciation. Because, um, you know, I've worked in corporate America uh, before I, I came to work with the Guard full time. And um, and uh, it, 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 I worked with a lot of people that had never served. And my boss always felt like supporting me uh, in my service in the Guard was his way of supporting, his, his way of serving. Uh, and I never took that for granted. And I've, you know, after doing being in that world for 13 years uh i still carry that forward with me and i i think i bring that perspective uh in the eyes of my soldiers and their families and uh but i think as commander i can i can give them either the predictability or the flexibility that they deserve what would you say to young women who might be a little unsure about such a challenging career and might think that the military just isn't for them so um you know, whether you choose to serve or not, um, you know, I would I would tell anybody, not just young women this, but uh, I would I would tell them, try to get out of your comfort zone. You know, uh, that's where the that's where the growth happens. Uh, you got to be willing to look silly sometimes. Uh, and uh, you got to be willing to accept those challenges. Like I said before, look at them as opportunities to grow uh, and learn. Um, be willing to take those risks. Uh, but if you stay in your comfort zone, chances are real good you're you're complacent, uh, or worse yet, you're stagnant. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I I think the military, um, in general, it calls a different type of person who who likes a challenge. Uh, so I don't know necessarily. Um, it, it, you know, I don't ne know necessarily that that would be. Um, be a situation. I do know that I deal with soldiers a lot of the time and have throughout my career uh, with lack of confidence, uh, not believing that they could do something. And a lot of times I discover that that's because that's what they've been told. And so, like I said earlier, teaching teaching them, you can't instill greatness in somebody. As a leader, I think it's our responsibility to help people realize their own greatness, not instill greatness. Uh, they, they've got it in them. We just got to help them realize it. Uh, and that's leadership in my mind. So I sometimes hear that we're a microcosm of society, but we're an all volunteer organization. So how can that really be? And um, there's a lot of things that people see when they see the Arkansas National Guard, when mm -hmm. they see the Army, when they see the Air Force. Um they see certain cultures. Right. Um, what would you say to young ladies about your experiences with the military culture overall and perhaps how it's changed over the years for the better and continues to change and grow? You bet. Um, wow. So I'm just going to go back to, to um, you know, my first day in the Arkansas National Guard because that still sticks with me. Uh, and it really shaped, uh, it really shaped how, I, who I am today. Uh, and, um, you know, I remember that first day, uh, and I reported for duty down in Lake Village, Arkansas, uh, which is way down in the Delta. Okay. Um, 
Uh, and uh, it was a little over 200 miles from where I lived. I lived in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, I was, you know, working. Uh, I worked as a graphic designer. So, you know, um, but I showed up to my uh, 40 soldier platoon of combat medics. It was a medical unit down there then. I was equipped with the brand new commission as a second lieutenant, and I was equipped with an art degree. <laughs> and uh, what I didn't have was a clue of what to expect or what I was doing, right? So, um, and I met my platoon sergeant. I'll never forget him. He was he was a E7, Sergeant First Class. Uh, Don Ogilvie was his name. And... Uh, you know, I don't know why the military is set up, but why do you take somebody straight out of art school, give them a commission, uh, and all of a sudden they're in charge of an E7 that's been doing this for a lot of years? Uh, he had um, he had done multiple tours in Vietnam when I was still in diapers, and I'm supposed to lead this guy. And that realization hit me that day one. Um and, you know, many of my soldiers, like I said, they were combat medics. Many of my soldiers had just got back from Desert Storm. And I'd missed all of that. So, you know, we've heard that, that you know, wet behind the years. I was definitely that. Um, and, you know, to be honest and frank, I was scared to death. I'm a pretty confident person, but I was scared to death. Um, and uh I kept thinking to myself, I was walking around and meeting people, but the whole time I'm thinking, how am I going to tell them what I expect and how am I going to lead them? And uh, I kept procrastinating it, but I knew before the day was over, I was going to get to have that that discussion, that all-call formation with the whole platoon. Um, and that's when I'm, you know, supposed to tell them this is what I expect as their, as their leader. Um but, you know, I didn't do that. It, 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 I didn't do it. I didn't tell them what I, instead of telling them what I expected, I just started asking them questions. Um, and I started asking them questions like, what did they expect of me? I'm your, I'm your leader. How can I help you, right? What can I do for you? I was asking them questions like that. And, you know, they rattled off, you know, all 40 of them had something to contribute. And, you know, I kept saying, yeah, I can help you with that. And, I don't know that I can, but let me see what I can do about that. But after we had this conversation um, and I committed to helping where I could, um, one of the soldiers, you know, in the back raised his hand. He said, hey, LT. I said, yeah. He said, uh, you haven't told us what you expect of us. And I said, um, you know, I, uh, I just want you to be here. Just be here. Let's start with that. And then if you're here, then I know you're okay. Uh, and then we can, everything else will happen. But I just need you to be here. And, um, you know, for almost 29 years now, um, I've been taking that same approach. Um, and, you know, it's it's been magical because, um, you know, it's created, you know, I mentioned a learning environment where people are free and willing to make mistakes. Um, it, it's a creative environment. Um and we have to allow people, ourselves included, to be able to make those mistakes. But we have to own those mistakes and we have to talk about those mistakes. You know, after action review is a good example. But doing it even on an informal basis so that uh, everybody can grow 
and learn from the mistakes that I've made or somebody else has made on the team. Uh, and so it's very non-judgmental. Um, and as a result of that, it creates, creates an environment and a culture of trust. Um, especially if a leader can humble themselves and say, I own it. I screwed this up. Uh, and boy, howdy, have I had to do that over the years. So <laughs> still do it today. Ma'am, making it to 06, Colonel in the Arkansas National Guard and but brigade commander uh, is certainly a huge accomplishment. So what what has prepared you to get to where you are? To what do you attribute these successes? <laughs> uh, I, I, I tell people all the time I'm living proof. Nobody cares what your GPA is. So <laughs> like I said, got an art degree. Um, I'm not the I'm not the smartest person. Never have been. Um, didn't like school at all. Um, I love the social aspect of school and I love the sports and all of that, but the academics, I was not. Um, but yes, I will tell you, um, really simply what's prepared me. Um, and a lot of this is, you know, hindsight, but what's really prepared me was my dad. Um, you know, I mentioned that he retired after, um, you know, more than 25 years, uh, as an E8 senior chief in the Navy, um, you know, he was aviation uh, maintenance. Um, he took a huge risk, you know, and, you know, was willing to travel the world. So, I mean, um, but, you know, he taught me at a really um, pivotal point in my life. Um, you know, I finally grew tired of fighting as a kid um, and, you know, fighting bullies. Um, and I had a lot of bullies that would uh, make fun of me because I was born born with a birth defect. Uh, you know, I was born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate, um, and which essentially means I had a hole in the roof of my mouth. I was missing, I didn't have an upper lip, and I was missing the lower portion of my, my nose. And clearly I've had a lot of reconstructive work over the years. Um, but... I finally got tired of fighting. I was about 12 years old. Um, and um, my dad taught me that I was asking the wrong question. Um, he said, you see, you, you, you keep asking why. You know, why are people making fun of you? Why was I born this way? Why, right? Why, why, why? And he said, baby, um, I've known people that have lived their entire lives asking why, and they never get an answer. He says, you're asking the wrong question. And I remember saying to him, what? <laughs> he goes, you're asking the wrong question. I said, what, what are you talking about? He says, I, I said, what? He said, uh, yeah, exactly. He says, you don't need to be asking why. You need to ask what? And um, he said, um, you know, what, um, you need to ask yourself what happened, right? And in the Army, that's kind of like our, that's our problem statement. It's, it's, this is so genius when I look back on it, but, you know, what happened? That's like our problem statement. The next thing that he said I needed to ask was, you know, what are you going to do about it? Well, what's that sound like? You know, course of action development, start solving the problem. So you start solving the first what. The third what was, what are you going to do to keep it from happening again? <laughs> right? So you're going to, what's the problem? 
How are you going to solve the problem? How are you going to prevent the problem from occurring in the future? Um, and then he looked at me and said, you know, baby, you're my daughter and I love you. Uh, and he said, but um, what do you need from me? And those were my four what's. And I was 12 years old. And I've carried, carried those with me ever since. Um, and, um, and like I said, I've been honoring uh, my father by serving those who serve since 1990 um, when uh, he died at the age of 47 shortly after retiring. Um, and I've done that um, not by asking why, but I've been honoring him by asking what. So That's great, ma'am. Yeah. It's a great story. Yeah. You've got lots of soldiers of yours listening to this podcast. You don't get the battlefield circulation that you would hope for every, no. every weekend. And the podcast doesn't let me hug them like I like to what either. What would you tell them? Um, you know, I would tell them that um, life is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Um and right now, I'm really concerned that, you know, we have people that are isolated, um, you know. I think a lot of people serve because of the, the family, the camaraderie, the sense of belonging. Uh, and I think we've done a, a, a decent job of being able to bring soldiers back into the fold and, and uh, you know, getting a sense of normalcy. Um, I personally want them to know that, you know, I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for their service. Um and I appreciate and adore and love every every single one of them. Uh, and I just really want to know what can I do for them. We're speaking with Colonel Corey Saylor, commander of 87 Troop Command. Ma'am, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Appreciate it. <laughs>